This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We will take a fourth package of measures to further isolate Russia and drain the resources it uses to finance this barbaric war. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent, filling in for Andrew Gray, who will be back next week. At the top of the podcast, you just heard Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, announcing another round of sanctions as Vladimir Putin continues to wage war in Ukraine. The sanctions target key metal industries and a wide range of prominent Russian figures with ties to Putin's regime or Putin himself. They also impose a ban on the export of European luxury goods to Moscow and prevent any new investment in the Russian energy sector. But they stop short of saying that EU countries will no longer buy Russian oil and gas. It's a step that EU leaders are now weighing as they consider a fifth round of sanctions in the coming days. But it won't be easy to convince all European countries to go along. One of those countries is Germany. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the German parliament on Thursday via video link. In a blistering speech, he accused Berlin of not living up to its historical responsibility after the Holocaust and criticized Germany for putting its economic interests above Western values and creating a sort of wall. Uh, Chancellor Scholz, please break, take down this wall. Give Germany the role of leadership that you deserve and your uh, Future generations will be proud of. Please support us. Zelensky also addressed members of the U.S. Congress. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and distinct honor of presenting to you the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. Slava Ukraina! Pleading for more help to end the war. I have a need. I need to protect uh, our sky. I need your decision, your help, which means exactly the same, the same. You- Meanwhile, the prime ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia traveled to Kiev earlier this week amid Russia's bombardment to meet Zelensky in person and show solidarity and support. The main goal of our visit or main message of our mission 
is to say you, you are not alone. Our countries stand with you. Europe stand with your country. And yet, the people of Ukraine continue to suffer the horrors of war. Another sign of Russian aggression against civilians in Ukraine. A bombing of a theater in the besieged city of Mariupol. The number of casualties is not yet known, but local officials say hundreds of people were sheltering there. In this episode, we'll hear about the work that's being done by organizations like the UN Human Rights Agency to help refugees who are fleeing the violence. And we'll also hear what the European Union is doing to support them. But first, we're going to turn to our podcast panel to better understand the role that China plays in this crisis, and to debate how European leaders are performing under the stresses of war. To unpack all that, I'm joined today by our chief Brussels correspondent, David Hersenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there, Sarah. And our EU-China correspondent, Stuart Lau. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Sarah. Stuart, I want to start with you because we asked our listeners to send us feedback on which angles they'd like us to explore on the podcast, and Beijing's role in the war is the one that really stood out to us. But before we get into their role now, could you just give us a quick sense of what the relationship between Beijing and Moscow was like before Putin started his war? So I think, you know, to understand Russia-China relations, um, the most important thing is the personalities at the top of these relationships, which is Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, both have been portrayed as strongman leaders. And, you know, for them, the common theme really is about feeling a threat from the kind of Western alliance. So um, just a few weeks before the war started, there was the Winter Olympics in Beijing and Putin was basically the only big name traveling to Beijing to celebrate the moment with uh, Xi Jinping. And they, on the sidelines of the event, signed the partnership agreement, basically laying out a kind of world order that would fit China and fit Russia in, you know, to try to talk about cooperation as much as possible. But if you look a little bit backward from the last 10 years, there was also a little bit of animosity between Russia and China. The Chinese officials would be recalling, you know, the kind of territory lost Russia uh, in the last few decades. There was a lot of, you know, mutual distrust between Russia and China. So really, it's the factor of US that bind them together rather than any mutual or bilateral kind of friendliness, if you like, uh, at least until the last few years. Well, yeah, and so... In that note of sort of Russia and China tag-teaming, let's look a bit at China's role in the crisis. We've seen these reports that China might be willing to help Russia get around certain sanctions, especially financial sanctions. We also heard some reports that Russia has asked China for military equipment. What do we know at this point about what Beijing is definitely doing to help Russia, if anything? So what we can say with certainty is, for example, the statement made by the foreign ministry spokesman a couple of days ago, basically assuring, reassuring the Russian government that, you know, all the trading relationship between China and Russia would remain open. China would not go for the kind of Western sanctions. Um, instead, um, they've been condemning the Western sanctions as unlawful, as unilateral. So they would definitely make sure the Russia-China trade would remain open. What is less certain at this stage is 
the extent to which the Chinese businesses would actually listen to the government and keep all the trading activities open. Because, of course, you know, a lot of these businesses, they also have business with the West, with Europe and with the US. Certainly, they would be very concerned about whether they're going to be hit by secondary sanctions. The other thing, of course, you know, is the fact that Russia is um, losing its appeal as a market. You know, of course, there's so much uncertainty about Chinese businesses, whether it still makes commercial sense. It's not just, you know, politics, you know, whatever the political masters are talking about. But, you know, in terms of, you know, trading relationship, are we still going to benefit? Are we still going to profit from this relationship in the long run? And um, the other matter, of course, you know, that would be very interesting to our EU audience is uh, oil and gas obviously. And so, you know, for the gas pipes, Russia has signed some deals with China. We're still waiting for the pipelines to get ready. But the oil transfer has been going on for some time. And um, of course, you know, China would definitely benefit from the fact that Russia is uh, losing its market appeal again as an oil and gas exporter, at least in, in the medium term. But Obviously, you know, we're not seeing any moves by the Chinese government to cut off any trading relationship, that's for sure. So, Sarah, I'm going to jump in here for a second and channel my inner Matt Karnichnik and say this is also an alliance of cowards. These are two of the most cowardly regimes on earth who repress freedoms because they have no belief or confidence that they could ever win a democratic election. So they crack down on the press, they crack down on their citizens, they are actually terrified of the same thing. And when they pick on other countries, they look towards smaller neighbors like Ukraine or Taiwan. Notice that Beijing is not worried, despite its long border with Russia, that Russia's lack of respect for the sovereignty of other nations is going to lead to a Russia-China confrontation. No, it's a like, okay, you swallow Ukraine. When we want to swallow Taiwan, you'll back us up and look the other way. But let's not mistake this for anything but what it is. Well, David, I, w I was going to follow up with you also, and you can answer either as David or as Matt Karnitinig. Um, the Russians were pretty quick to come out and deny this report from the U.S. that that they had requested help from China. Why not boast that they have this huge, powerful economy backing them up? Well, because they are pleading for help. And Russia, despite wanting to show that it has the backing of Beijing, that it's not isolated in the world, although I've seen now an interesting stat that with the new sanctions have come, that have come into place, Russia is now the most sanctioned nation on earth. That means they outrank North Korea and Iran in terms of the sheer number of punitive measures that have been racked up against them. But what they don't want to show is that they're not succeeding militarily. There was a lot of myth built around the Russian military when in fact what it seems to have done in places like Aleppo in Syria or in Grozny in Chechnya is an air bombardment, you know, wanton killing of civilians, flattening of cities, which looks really terrifying. But then when you get to a situation where they actually are required to have some sort of strategy, to have logistical support, to be able to fight, you know, in a cohesive way, they're falling to bits. Politically, and Stuart needs to chime in here, I'm not so sure that Beijing is as clear about its support for all of uh, Russia's objectives. But certainly Moscow doesn't want to admit that the war is going as badly as it is, which is why, again, cracking down on the press, they've threatened to jail reporters in Russia for 15 years if they even use the word war. Absolutely. I mean, Beijing has been very, very diplomatic about its position, which, by the way, is a very tricky and very delicate one. We've seen, you know, um, Chinese diplomats talking to Western counterparts, and basically they're saying, you know, we want you guys to talk, you know, Europe should talk to Russia, Ukraine should talk to Russia. 
instead of, you know, saying, you know, Moscow, you should stop the war now. They're not really that straightforward. They're saying, you know, everyone should make sure, you know, Russia's concerns get listened to. You know, there should be a long term strategy towards European security architecture. And um, I was just talking to some EU diplomats and they're basically saying they wouldn't rule out the possibility of China actually trying to get a seat on the table if such talks actually happen. But I think, you know, Looking at, you know, from Beijing's perspective, looking at the whole thing, this year has definitely not turned out the way China hopes to be because, you know, they're preparing for the Communist Party Congress in the autumn. Xi Jinping is going to get a third term, uh, which is, of course, um, breaking from the norms, breaking from tradition. And um, all he wants, you know, in the remaining half year towards that timeline is actually continuity, stability, instead of chaos and uncertainty and basically getting cornered every day about where China stands on this issue and fearing so much about, you know, the sanctions potentially placing an impact on Chinese businesses. And that's definitely not the kind of situation he would like to be in. Stuart, how is China's sort of effort to maybe be involved but not be too involved? How is that going to affect its long-term relationship with the West, especially with Brussels? I mean, uh, that is definitely a very interesting question. I mean, April 1st is going to be the EU-China summit. And uh, of course, you know, Ukraine is going to be the biggest topic, if not the only topic that Ursula von der Leyen and Xi Michel will be interested to to get a sense from, you know, President Xi Jinping to see where things stand. Make no mistake, I think, you know, China is fully aware of the difficult position it is found itself in, in terms of, you know, balancing the relationship with the West. I mean, of course, you know, EU-China relations was already seeing so much trouble, you know, Lithuania. The crisis was triggered by the opening of an official Taiwanese representative's office in the Lithuanian capital, Vilnius. And uh, all the sanctions on the MEPs, you know, the, the trade deal getting stuck. The European Parliament has voted in favour of a resolution to permanently freeze the EU-China trade investment agreement. The move was prompted by China's sanctioning of five MEPs in response to the EU sanctioning four Chinese individuals linked to the forced labour and detention of Chinese Uyghurs. But nothing was really on quite the same scale as we are having now. And again, I think it goes back to where China sees its long-term strategic interest lies. I mean, whether it wants to be seen to be a partner to the pariah state led by a, a dictator with so much blood on his hand. Or does it want to be seen to be um, playing a friendly role in the West, you know, to be a constructive role, uh, even with all the human rights problems that it has already had in its own country? But the West would definitely be looking very carefully, especially on whether the military aspects, you know, whether China is going to support Russia's war in any meaningful way, militarily, financially. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Should they provide military or other assistance uh, that, of course, violates sanctions or uh, or supports the war effort, uh, that there will be uh, significant consequences. But in terms of what those specifics look like, we would coordinate with our partners and allies to make that determination. That would definitely be the focal point, if you like, in the next couple of weeks before the EU-China summit, which, again, will provide us with some ideas about how the EU sees China in the foreseeable future. You know, I'll jump in with just a, uh, to add a point about how this might not go very well for China in the sense that Western leaders who might have been lulled into a complacency that the world order they had established, the financial, international financial system dominated by the U.S., that any of these things 
were sort of permanent and secure and could be taken for granted, that's all shattered. They now are very well aware that the worst of their fears could be realized. And leaders like uh, Putin, like Xi Jinping, will never be underestimated. And so, in fact, their ears are going to perked up watching and knowing that, in fact, nothing that they thought they could take for granted about global security and stability is guaranteed. And so I think, you know, there will be a much quicker reaction. Obviously, you see the backlash then, and this is part of what we've been talking about, the clear desire of Beijing and Moscow to make sure that they have mechanisms to sustain their economies, to continue doing business, to continue serving uh, their interests, even if the West comes down on them and tries to shut off things like the SWIFT international payment system. Lots of reasons why you can see them in defensive maneuvers, but I also think you'll see a very united international community sort of much more wary about the trouble that big powers can make. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of Chinese experts, they're already saying, you know, oh, maybe this is a a good opportunity to see the weakening of the West in some ways. For example, you know, the, the power of the dollars is going to be on decline after it lost the Russian market. So maybe it's time to push for the internationalization of the Chinese currency, the yuan, at least when it comes to transactions with Russia. So obviously, I think you're absolutely uh, spot on, you know, on the fact that, you know, uh, for China, especially, you know, they're definitely seeing it as an opportunity to see a weakened West in the great power struggle. To just switch gears a little bit, I don't want to look backwards too much, but I just want to reflect a little bit on what we saw in Versailles, the quote unquote informal summit of the European leaders to talk about Ukraine. David, watching these discussions, who has really emerged as a key wartime leader in Europe? And have you been surprised by anybody? Have you been disappointed by anybody? I mean, what we saw in Versailles, and I don't think we have to look backward at all, is really 27 plus, the 27 uh, heads of state and government of the EU, plus the institutional leaders, really, you know, innocence shattered, coming to terms with the fact that they are all, in a way, wartime leaders. And, you know, if after the pandemic started, you and I, Sarah, watched this very closely, they were sort of stunned and shocked to be dealing with a once in a lifetime or once in a century pandemic. Here, none of them really expected war to return to the continent of Europe in this way. And so you do see them um, really grappling with this, uh, not you know a cheery moment for any of them. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the first woman to be president of the European Commission, has had a central role in helping to coordinate sanctions, uh, picking up the dialogue with Washington. They've done, by most accounts, a pretty good job of keeping that uh, together, coming out very, very quickly. And at one point, the EU even getting ahead of its partners by sanctioning Putin and uh, Sergei Lavrov personally, Germany making a historic decision to send weapons. So, you know, they are trying to rise to the occasion. And at the same time, we are seeing limits where, in fact, you know, they're not willing to put boots on the ground. They're not willing yet to do any kind of a no-fly zone. We hear the arguments against that. They say that would bring them in direct conflict with Russia. In many ways, though, they're already in direct conflict with Russia. We know Russia invaded Ukraine because Ukraine chose a westward trajectory specifically toward the EU. And many Ukrainians feel a little bit let down by a European Union. They like to point out, and I was there for the Maidan revolution, that Ukrainians are the only ones who died under the EU flag. So I think the EU leaders are really trying to figure out how best they can support Ukraine. We see a brave move just this week as the prime minister of Poland, of Slovenia, of the Czech Republic, riding a train into Kiev as it's under bombardment to uh, visit with uh, Zelensky and the prime minister uh, Schmigal to show their support. You know, there's a bit of bravery. And I think people need to remember that, you know, in wartime, some bravery is in fact required. You can't 
just rely on the safe steps. Uh, so we'll see how far they ramp up sanctions. Um, but that was the mood at Versailles, quite somber, uh, sort of innocence shattered, realizing, recognizing their limitations. All right. Well, Stuart, David, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after this short break, we'll dive deeper into the humanitarian crisis that continues to grow as millions of Ukrainians are seeking refuge in countries throughout Europe. What are the EU and other organizations doing to address their needs? You'll learn more about the political, practical, and human sides of this crisis right after this short break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The situation really, I can't speak without uh, tears. I'm sorry, but I'm really sorry for my country and nobody. This morning, the United Nations says three million Ukrainians have now fled their country. Since the start of this Russian invasion, you know, 300,000 refugees. That means the population of Warsaw is up nearly 20 percent in just two weeks. The mayor saying they can't handle. We have activated the so-called temporary protection directive for the very first time in the history of the European Union. This gives all Ukrainian immediately residency rights. And by that, of course, half of the refugees who fled Ukraine so far are children. That's over a million kids. Unfathomable. I spoke with Sophie McGuinness earlier this week. She has over two decades of experience in human rights and diplomacy. These days, she's the head of policy and legal support at the UNHCR's representation for EU affairs in Brussels. So the UNHCR is the United Nations Office for the High Commissioner of Refugees. And I started off by asking McGinnis to explain what an organization like the UN Refugee Agency does in a crisis like this. This is the kind of crisis that the UN Refugee Agency was established to deal with. Our agency's job is to implement the 1951 Refugee Convention and to provide practical help and support to refugees who are fleeing conflict, fleeing persecution. So what we have done is in the weeks leading up to the terrible events of 24 February, we had already engaged with our partners and other UN organizations to try and plan for a range of scenarios. So already back in December, we were looking at the situation and thinking, what would we do if 
tens of thousands of refugees fled from Ukraine into the EU. What would we do if two million refugees fled from Ukraine into the EU? So we start off with contingency planning. We try and do the best guesstimates that we can. And then when events like the 24th of February happen and people are forced to flee, we have people on the ground providing support and help to help the EU member states into which the refugees have fled. And we try and provide practical support and and protection support. We like to provide protection by presence. So we get people and material on the ground as, as soon as possible. But I think that the the speed of this crisis has really taken all of us by surprise just in terms of the numbers of refugees. And today we will hit the mark of three million refugees having fled Ukraine in 20 days. That is a lot. Wow. Yeah. And we're, we're speaking on Tuesday, March 15th. So presumably by the time people are listening to this, it will be even higher. Mm-hmm. You talk about people on the ground. Who are these people who are on the ground on behalf of the UN? Well, inside Ukraine, we have over 100 staff. And we've had a big presence in Ukraine for many years because UNHCR has been assisting with people who were displaced within their own country because of the conflict in the East. So we've had a long presence for many years. So when this crisis hit, we had quite a large staff already on the ground. And we are attempting to beef that staffing up by bringing in additional staff. But obviously, the security situation is very difficult. Then in EU member states, we do have a presence in these countries in Poland, in Slovakia, in Hungary, in Romania, and in, in Moldova. But our offices there have been quite small. But we have moved in recent weeks to get additional staff on the ground. And now we have, I think, nearly 40 staff on the ground in Moldova. So prior to these events, I think we had one or two staff covering that country. So that just shows how quickly we've had to scale up to to try and help the response to the refugees who are coming out. And yeah, let's talk about those refugees, those people who are fleeing Ukraine. You know, in a statement last week, and that's when the figure was only 2 million people um, who were leaving, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, said this, behind the monolithic statistics are 2 million stories of separation, anguish, and loss. Can you tell us maybe just one or two of those stories so we can really understand what it's like for the human beings who are having to leave their homes? There's one story of a young woman, 28 years of age, with two small children and her mother. And her husband drove them from the east. They were from Donetsk. He drove them from there to the west of of Ukraine in order for them to be a little bit safer. He then had to return to his post in the army. So he left them in in a town in the west where they believed they would be safe. They're now accommodated in a student residence, which the kind of student residence that most of us uh, who will have gone to college will remember. And she's hosted there in a student dorm with her two small kids and her mom. And they have no idea how long they're going to be there. She's obviously terrified for the safety of her husband. She doesn't know when they'll be reunited. She doesn't know if the place in which they're staying will be safe for longer, if they'll have to flee beyond there. So I think stories like that bring home the fragility of the lives and how insecure the lives of these families are. And I think the best that humanitarian actors can do is provide some solace, some comfort. The loss in their lives is overwhelming. 
and to try and provide a little bit of stability and support while they're there. For those who have left Ukraine, you know, the stories that we hear from our colleagues on the ground is that people desperately want to go home. And there are many Ukrainians who are moving on from EU countries in the East, let's say Poland, Slovakia and others. They're moving on to countries where they may have family links or where there are large diasporas of Ukrainian communities already living. But many of them don't want to move too far because their husbands, their brothers, their fathers are are still in Ukraine. And you said that you're trying to provide some solace for for these people. What does that look like on a practical level? On a practical level, it means helping countries with what we call, you know, accommodation arrangements or reception arrangements. So UNHCR is delivering mattresses, thermal blankets. People are arriving across borders. They're cold, they're hungry. So it's the basic needs. So working with partners, we try and make sure that people have a warm place to go to. There are wonderful partners on the ground who are providing hot meals. We try and make sure that they have some some basic necessities. For the most vulnerable families, we've also put in place some cash supports. So we launched that already last week uh, in Poland. We're also trying to do similar within Ukraine so that for the most vulnerable families, they can access cash. And, And cash is the best way because no family knows their needs better than their own. In addition, what we're trying to do now and working with our partners in in IOM, that's the International Organization for Migration, we have put in place what we call a green corridor between Moldova and Romania. So we've put on buses to, to transport families from Moldova into Romania, where they can there avail of assistance in Romania or be supported again to move further on to where their families might be in other EU member states. So there's the immediate support, which I'm speaking about, but we also need to start thinking long-term already and putting in place the kinds of things communities will need to support the integration of these Ukrainian families. Yeah. Can you help me understand what that looks like? Because, you know, we've seen everyday people be quite generous, offering up their homes to people fleeing, but presumably they can't do that forever. So what is the more kind of permanent or indefinite plan? Yeah, I think the the amount of volunteers lining up to open their hearts and homes is just fantastic. We see this as a, as a temporary support until these families can get access to this temporary protection regime that's been established in all European countries. So what this means is that Ukrainians and some other groups of nationalities will be eligible for temporary protection. And that means they have access to the labor market, they have access to education, to social welfare, to housing. It's a really good development that the European Commission proposed and that member states agreed to. And then in terms of those state supports, I think we already need to be thinking, and many countries are already doing this, of what we need to do to support children to get into schools quickly. That's the first thing families and kids ask when they arrive. When can I go to school? Where will I go to school? And it's very good that funding has been announced by very senior people in the commission. But the real challenge is making sure that that funding makes its way down to the local authorities, the local mayors, the local community groups, the church groups who are willing and standing ready to welcome people into their communities. That's going to be a real challenge because when it comes to sustainable integration, those communities are, are key. 
Is there anything else that you can tell me from your perch here in Brussels about how the coordination is going with the EU institutions? Yeah, I think the coordination is is going very well. There's been a announcement last week of what's called a solidarity platform. And the idea behind that solidarity platform is to look at the capacity in all EU countries on accommodation places for, uh, for refugees from Ukraine. And the idea is to see where is there lots of capacity and where is there less capacity and where can EU member states support each other to, to enhance capacity that might be there. So this is an area where in recent months and years, there have been some very difficult discussions amongst EU member states about how to share responsibility for refugees, how to share responsibility for asylum seekers. And now we see a different and very welcome approach where it looks like there's more willingness from states to really work together and to share responsibility. And I think as as UNHCR, the Refugee Agency, we really want to try and build on that and build on the, the response that we've seen from the public across the EU and to generate more support for the refugee cause globally arising from this. And one of the messages that we always try and bring home as UNHCR is that the refugee experience is something that we hope will never happen to us, but could happen to us. You yourself have over 20 years of experience in human rights and diplomacy. How would you describe the scale of what we're currently seeing compared to previous catastrophes? I think the thing that's remarkable about what has happened in Ukraine is just the speed of the refugee movement out of Ukraine. As we've said, this is the fastest moving refugee situation since World War II. So if we look, for example, at the Syria crisis, which remains the largest refugee displacement crisis that we're dealing with, that was still a profound refugee movement but it wasn't on the, on the speed of the scale of what we're seeing now in the context of Ukraine. And the other thing that is remarkable, if I may, is that the reaction, particularly from EU member states, has been to sort of shift in the way that, that EU member states have approached asylum issues in recent years. And there's an acceptance that Ukrainian and other refugees who arrive from Ukraine into the European Union should be given an opportunity to decide where they want to go, essentially. You know, what we are seeing now is that Ukrainians are moving to where they have a diaspora. That is good for everybody, because if families are going to countries where they know people, where they have relatives, that's the best way to help them on their their integration path. So I think this will be very interesting to see whether we we can kind of rethink some of the rules that we have within the European Union. All right, Sophie McGuinness, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Thanks for having us. And for those of you who are looking for ways to help in this crisis, we'll include a link in our show notes to UNHCR's website with more information. And that's all the time we have on this week's episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to click follow wherever you're currently listening to this podcast so you never miss an episode. As you heard at the beginning of the show, we do often take listener suggestions for guests or topics, so you can always email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Sarah Wien in Brussels. Thanks this week to Noah Zahn, James Randerson, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. 
And thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.